Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. There are many reflections and tributes across social media and in statements on the life of civil rights activist, pioneer C.T. Vivian, who died earlier today here in Atlanta. He was 95 years old. And coming up in just a moment, longtime friend and fellow civil rights pioneer Zanona Clayton talks about Vivian's life and legacy. This man never, ever wanted retaliation. He wanted victory for our people. He was a true and unwavering, committed crusader for justice. That conversation is just moments away. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is doubling down on his decision to sue Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the entire city council regarding Mayor Bottoms' mask mandate. Governor Kemp held an early morning press conference. Yesterday, we filed a lawsuit against the city of Atlanta on behalf of, on behalf of business owners, their employees, and hardworking Georgians throughout the region who continue to struggle to make ends meet. Men and women have seen their paychecks disappear. Fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers are barely hanging on. Mayor Bottoms' mask mandate cannot be enforced, but her decision to shutter businesses and undermine economic growth is devastating. Atlanta businesses are hurting. Violent crime is up, and families are rightfully worried. Just like sending in the National Guard to protect the those living in our capital city from crime and violence, I refuse to sit back and watch as disastrous policies threaten the lives and livelihoods of our citizens. We will fight to stop reckless actions and put people over pandemic politics. Mayor Bottoms is also standing by her executive order, speaking today on the NBC network. At the end of the day, this is about saving lives. Over 3,100 people have died in our state. 106,000 have tested positive. Myself, my husband, and one of my children are amongst the positive. I'm in quarantine as we speak. So I take this very seriously, and I will continue to do everything in my power to protect the people of Atlanta. And the governor has simply overstepped his bounds and his authority, um, and we'll see him in court. Meanwhile, the State Department of Health reports there are 131,275 confirmed COVID-19 cases. Also, there are 3,104 reported deaths. 14,346 are hospitalized, and of those, 2,736 are ICU admissions. This according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, as mentioned, the Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was so instrumental in working alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and who helped coordinate and organize campaigns within the civil rights movement, died today. He was 95 years old. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms tweeted in part, quote, Our city and nation lost an incredibly kind and courageous man today. May the lessons of love, leadership, and reconciliation taught to us by C.T. Vivian continue to rest and abide in our hearts and minds today and always, close quote. The Reverend Jesse Jackson, who also was part of that civil rights movement, also tweeting today, quote, Reverend C.T. Vivian is gone to be with God. It is heaven's gain and our loss. He was one of the tallest trees in the civil rights forest. He never stopped dreaming. He never stopped fighting. We are better because he came this way. He was one of my mentors. I miss him so much already. Hashtag rest in peace. And Dr. Bernice King also taking to Twitter, Quote, wow, you gave so much to make us better. I'm grateful and I will miss you. Now, in 2013, C.T. Vivian received the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. It was presented by then-President Barack Obama. 
Today, we salute fierce competitors who became true champions. We salute pioneers who pushed our nation towards greater justice and equality. A Baptist minister, C.T. Vivian, was one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s closest advisors. Martin taught us, he says, that it's in the action that we find out who we really are. And time and again, Reverend Vivian was among the first to be in the action, one of the first freedom riders. And so, on the course out steps to register blacks to vote, for which he was beaten, bloodied, and jailed. Rosa Parks said of him, even after things had supposedly been taken care of and we had our rights, he was still out there, inspiring the next generation, including me, helping kids go to college with a program that would become Upward Bound. And at 89 years old, Reverend Vivian is still out there, still in the action, pushing us closer to our founding ideas. In talking about receiving the Medal of Freedom, C.T. Vivian spoke with WABE's Dennis O'Hare. Do you think you're receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom in some way verified what you believe, not to you certainly, because you already did, yeah. but to the rest of the country? Yeah. See, I think that, that uh, the, one of the great things about Martin, he changed the nation. There's not an institution in America that hasn't been changed by the civil rights movement under Martin, all right? Is that there's not an, inst there's not a, uh, an organization in this nation except for the Klan that hasn't taken another kind of attitude. And even I've heard Klan members uh, come off of a good deal that they used to say is that uh, 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 this nation has been totally changed. Never has, has there been such a great change in a great power uh, uh, as, uh, as happened under Martin in, in this country. In his own words, the Reverend C.T. Vivian, after receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. And as we continue to remember the life, contributions, and legacy of Vivian, we now turn to someone who knew him very well, Mr. Nona Clayton. As always, Ms. Clayton, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, you and I were talking about often people know the names, but they don't know the work. They don't yes. know the full scope of the work that people like C.T. Vivian and yourself and so many others did during the Civil right. Rights Movement. Your reflections on your friend. Well, C.T. Vivian, the reason people didn't know him, he didn't make much noise. Um, he was a man who never stood around waiting to get a photo, you know, wanting you to know that he was with Martin Luther King. He was too busy. The man was a highly, highly, highly intellectual. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could talk thoroughly about art, literature, books, uh, history, just everything, and always on the move, fast-paced. He'd come into the office, having been out on some assignment, he'd come in the office, and he'd make a quick hello to everybody. Now, most folk come in, if they'd been out, they'll chat with you, what you've been doing, what's going on, how is this, that, and the other. C.T. would come through that front door, say hello, suit. Well, his office was in the back in, in a building. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'd go walk down that hall to his office, fast-paced all the time. That doesn't mean he was being snooty. He's just, his mind was on what, he, what he's getting ready to do next. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I were to describe him, I'd say that this man lived his life with a purpose. Do all you can, as often as you can. And as long as you can, that's the way I would describe him because he lived that. C.T. really started way back when he was a youngster in, in Illinois and fighting for rights early. Mm -hmm. And he stayed on the course always, always. And I had uh, remembered when Martin Luther King went to jail in Birmingham, um, he was taking time out to give uh, people um, some uh, orders, like he didn't know how long he was going to stay, and he would tell Andy, you do this, so-and-so do that, you know, do the other, tell Raph to do that. And um, C. 
CP had gone to California on, on a business trip, and he said, call CT because if all my men get arrested, uh, we need CT to stay out and do the talking and do the negotiating. Um, you know, just call on CT because he knew he would do what he was instructed to do. Uh, so he knew how to follow orders, mm-hmm. but he knew how to also uh, engineer uh, movements. You know, he, to me, is the best symbol and the best example of why and how and the reason we should vote. And I talk about him all the time in this regard. He was in uh, Alabama, and there was a voting rights uh, march and um, led by C.T. Well, this is before they had the march, but C.T. got a few people in the city to join him. They went down to the steps of the courthouse because we couldn't vote and we as black people couldn't vote at that time. And um, nor had we registered. Well, you got to register before you can vote. We didn't even have registration rights. So he went down there and said, we're just going to pray because he knew we couldn't get in. And uh, at that point, Jim Clark, who was the meanest white man, I think, in the whole state of Alabama, he was uh, the, the sheriff uh, in Alabama, but he was mean. Everybody knew he was just the meanest white man living. And do you know, here they were, stooped on the steps, trying to get in, said, all we want to do is register to vote. Mm-hmm. And C.T. got hit all across the face mm-hmm. and the head with this billy club. And there's blood running all down Bates while he's praying. Now, that picture went around the nation and probably the world, but certainly the nation. And I'd say to people, because one of my many jobs was to be sure on voting day we got the black people out of bed and go and vote. And often they give you excuses. Oh, my stomach hurts. Or, I don't have a ride. Or I'm tired. I'll go later. Oh, a whole lot of excuses. And I said, do you know Reverend C.T. Vivian? Of course, they didn't. But when they did uh, a, a movie, well, it wasn't a movie, it was a documentary, um, Eyes on the Prize, and that was included, uh, that beating was included, all mm-hmm. the blood run all down his face. And I said, if any time you got weak knees and indecision uh, facing you, about mm-hmm. whether you should get up and vote or not. Turn that TV on and look at that footage because there's no way you could sleep in if you see this man trying to fight for justice in such a brutal way. Um, so to me, he's the picture of voting. Then, you know, subsequently we won and got the Voters' Rights Act. And uh, that's why I tell people today when I saw in Atlanta our uh, last voting, uh, it rained that day. If you mm-hmm. remember then, everything was malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. And some people said, I, I don't care about the rain. I'll stay here all day. And so now I, that was like music to my ears because I remember the day they wouldn't even get up to go out to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they're saying that we're, we're willing to stand in the rain because somewhere along the way we've gotten the message that we must vote. But it's all because of C.T.'s bravery and his tenacity and his willingness uh, to face um, a beating Mm -hmm. to get the message across. Now, you have to stop me because I just keep going. No, no. Listen, this is history and this is knowledge for a lot of folks. So you can always continue on as long as I'm sitting at this mic. Um, And, you know, Ms. Clayton, also, you talked about that incident with Sheriff Clark. And if folks don't know, when Mr. Vivian got up from that, he they stitched him up. He still continued to talk till he was taken away and jailed. And even yeah. still, uh-huh. years later, he talked about nonviolence being the key to success for action. Mm-hmm. And it was in his soul. I mean, he didn't mind, like uh, Martin Luther King said, but uh, do you like getting beaten? It was just a joke at the moment. But, I mean, he didn't, you know, he, he'll go on the front line in a minute. I mean, you, mm-hmm. could, you could count on him. 
uh, to be a part of things. But you know what? That was just that side of him. But you know, the other side of him is as busy as that man was, but he had children, Mm -hmm. a wife, uh, Octavia was his wife, Mm -hmm. and she became ill and was bedridden, but he wanted her to stay home because she wanted to just stay home, not stay in the hospital, but stay home. But every morning, he would, um, uh, and, and I'm assuming the way he told the story, that they were in separate rooms because she was so ill. Mm-hmm. He said every morning he'd wake up and go sit by her bed and wait for her to wake up and give mm-hmm. her breakfast. He said he didn't care what time it was. He mm-hmm. wanted to be sure that when she woke up, she saw him. And he said, you know what, I didn't do that for her. She didn't ask me to do that. I did that for me. I'm her husband. She's the mother of these children. And we're a family unit. And we've got to show the love to the very end. That was the way he felt. And and then along the way, his one of his sons got sick. And um, he had to um, look after the son and the wife, mm-hmm. and he was at the both bedsides, just going from bedside to bedside. He would not take any appointments in the mornings because he had to be there when his wife woke up. Now, uh, he always called her the wife, and people used to say, what's your wife's name? Because you forget <laughs> about You never heard October, you, uh, October, which was her name. He was the, the wife. The wife. <laughs> we used to laugh because he was kind of atypical uh, kind of guy, use the language, but smart as a whip. I never met a man who was so broadly uh, knowledgeable about everything. He knew about history, music, um, the arts, um, the Bible, of course, and you could just name the area. Mm-hmm. C.T. knew all about it and could talk to you at length and often would. Um, and every time he would come to see me, he would um, uh, say, oh, golly, uh, call so-and-so and tell him I'm running a little late. I said, yeah, <laughs> but you said that when you came in. You were going to be here for a minute. <laughs> but if you get him to talk, it would, you know, you could keep him all day. But um, he was a a man who had a cause. He had a cause for living. Um, and um, to me, he kept that uh, vivacity, for, and he was, you know, walked fast all the time. Mm-hmm. He always, you know, looked less than his years, younger than his years. Um, so he's been fast-paced for a long time. And he walk into the office, go straight to his office, but he would, you know, say hello to everybody, but moving fast. And the receptionist used to have to stop him to give him his message. He said, wait, Dr. Vivian, you got some messages here you need to pick up. And then he'd come back and she'd give them to him. But he was always on the move, on mm-hmm. the move. And looks like he lived that almost to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, when you call on him, you could get him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was available and accessible in the latter years after his wife passed on. Um he uh, was available when you needed him and uh, ready when you called him. Unusual man. Mm-hmm. Never seemed angry. I've never seen him angry. I guess he did get angry, but I never saw it. Never saw an angry moment emanating from his looks or his face or his body language. Miss mm. Clayton, what were you missed the most about your friend, C.T. Vivian? Well, I think there's somebody you can talk to. Um, and ask him a question, he's got the answer. Um, but I used to like to hear him tell me the story about that also beating, because uh, I was just saying, you know, I, 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 and I think we all have a tendency to do this, judge yourself uh, when you listen to somebody else's story. If somebody beats me once, I don't think I want a second term of that, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he didn't stop. I mean, that's why that blood keeps coming, because the man kept beating. He didn't get up um, until he just, you know, was knocked out, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think he had the cause embedded in his system that I'm here to win this war. 
uh, and he seemed like everything was important to him. Um, and I just liked him. He was kind and sweet and wonderful. So he had an even temper uh, that was was prevailing uh, throughout his existence. You know, he just seemed like he was pleased all the time. And, you know, when he was having problems with, um, you know, the family having some breakdowns with, with illness, um, I mean, he was disturbed by that. And then when there's a movement um, going on, he was disturbed by that, I'm sure. And But somehow he just seemed fearless. Um, and like I said, we, we judge other people by our own. Um, if someone hits you on the head once you, you know, you almost don't want to stick around. Um, and this was a mean man. Uh, I never uh, got a chance to, to see. I saw the effort, I mean, the effect of um, the uh, sheriff. Uh, I mean, he was so mean. Mm-hmm. But he looked mean. Uh, Jim Clark looked mean. And um, and almost like, you know, I'm 4'11", but, you know, I kind of want to fight back. You know, <laughs> I'd be willing to want to, you know, punch him at least once, yeah. you know. This man never, ever wanted retaliation. He wanted victory for our people. He was a true and unwavering, committed crusader for justice. Zenora Clayton, civil rights leader, pioneering broadcaster, thank you so much for your reflection on the Reverend C.T. Vivian, and thank you for taking the time, as always, to speak with Closer Look. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Homicide investigators have yet to publicly address additional developments in the shooting death of 8-year-old Sequoia Turner the night of July 4th. It happened right across the street from where 27-year-old Rayshard Brooks was killed following an altercation with Atlanta police officers. This week, however, a suspect in Turner's killing, 19-year-old Julian Connolly, turned himself in after arrest warrants were issued for felony murder and aggravated assault. Authorities say there are several others they are looking for. Now, the neighborhood where Turner and Brooks were killed is also the district represented by longtime Atlanta City Council member Joyce Shepard. And recently, community representatives from several neighborhoods presented some demands to Shepard and two other council members. Joining me now to talk about those needs and demands from the communities, as well as other concerns, Councilmember Joyce Shepard. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good afternoon. Before we get into our conversation, I just want to give you an opportunity to reflect on news today of the passing of C.T. Vivian here in Atlanta, a longtime civil rights activist, the Reverend C.T. Vivian. I know that you knew him. What are your reflections on his life? My heart hurts this morning. We have now lost another civil rights hero in our community. We don't have that many left with Mr. Vivian, and we only have a few left. And Mm -hmm. so my heart hurts for him and his family. Uh, I have seen him interact in so many different ways throughout our community, even at City Hall in the last several years. I mean, even though Mr. Vivian was a little older in age, he was always down at City Halls advocating for the right things for our people. So my heart goes out to his family. And that's a good way to segue into our conversation you talked about advocating for the rights of others. How long have you been representing your district? This year, next month will be 16 years. I'm 15 years in, and next month will be 16 years. When you were out at the Wendy site, you were out there for so many days after Shard Brooks' shooting death and then Sequoia Turner's shooting death. You were in the community. What was going through your mind as you listened to them? Some were angry. Some shouted at you. As you tried to address the crowd, I know that Sunday after Richard Brooks' killing, what was going through your mind? What did you feel from this community at that time? I felt their passion, their hurt, just like myself. I felt that what happened to Richard Brooks could have been done categorically a whole different way. So I was hurt, very hurt over what had happened. And I felt what they felt. Uh, so I came out as a council person to listen, to interact, to understand, and to see how I could get involved. This is not new to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh-huh. I am in my 60s, but I would tell you, as I told some of them as they were out there, and there were a lot of young folks, young people in their 20s and 30s and young, some of them millenniums, and they were actually uh, protesting and stating what they felt was their right. I, back in the 70s, did exactly the same thing. Uh, part of my whole movement, in terms of me being where I am now, I actually was pulled in by Reverend Joseph Boone into uh, this. I was an employee working at a company downtown uh, downtown in the 70s, and they were discriminating. That was the same time that uh, there was bar carton against a store called Richest Department Store. Mm-hmm. And I saw Reverend Boone and Jose William on TV interacting. I'm just a little young sister 
18 years old, trying, looking at the news and saying, they're doing the same thing where I'm working. I went and reached out to Reverend Boone. Reverend Boone pulled me in with students from the AU Center. And I have been working ever since. It really got me involved in terms of understanding the dynamics of what happens to Black folks in our community, racism, discrimination. And I have never stopped working from 18 all the way up to where I am now. I'll continue to working to make a difference in my community. So in all the years you've been on council, and then prior to that, since you were 18 years old, can you recall a time like this in your district where there was so much, quite frankly, outrage about what's been taking yeah, place? This is, a, this is a whole different movement than when I was coming up. And, and to be honest with you, rightfully so, I'm proud of, of how things have moved in terms of where we were from the 60s and the 70s to where we are now. Uh, I'm very hopeful that as we go through these protests and all the things that are happening that is becoming obvious, so obvious that the blatant racism before in the 60s and 70s, they covered up a lot of stuff. But now where we are in terms of social media, the news, it's much more of a coverage of that. And it, it's exposed more, it's much mm-hmm. more exposed. And so as a result of being exposed, people can blatantly see it. And as a result of that, not only Black folks, but people across the country are crying out and saying enough is enough. So we're at a different point in the world at this, de- at this stage. And I believe I'm very hopeful that we can, ha- in terms of all of this, that changes categorically have to be made. Councilmember Shepard, I want to move to the armed group that was patrolling the area around the Wendy's location. Did you have conversations with these people? Yes, I did. I had conversations as a part of me being out there, and you saw me out there, not only with the folks who were screaming and shouting at me, I was also out there when it changed, it shifted from one to the others. I was literally at that Wendy's every day looking at what was going on, interacting with folks and trying to understand. So there was a lot of things that was going on. I also galvanized neighborhood folks in my community uh, there are four or five neighborhoods surrounding that particular Wendy's. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Wendy sits in People Town, and I believe you had a conversation with the people from People Town on your show. Uh, it's also uh, a historic South Side, is right up the street, mm-hmm. uh, High Point Estate, Joyland, and Pittsburgh community. So there are several neighborhoods that immediately touch that Wendy's. That actually, that that whole corner there is the gateway to about four or five neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So what I did was pull all those folks together and we all went out and had a conversation with the folks on site there. Did you ask them why they felt the need to be armed? From the beginning, this is what they said to me. I said, why are y'all carrying guns? Why is this necessary? And and their whole position was that there was a shift. Uh, Originally from the beginning, the people who burned down the Wendy's uh, store, uh, the Wendy's restaurant, the folks who was out there doing other things that they thought was negative, that they actually was out there to say, we are not them. And they actually said, basically, that they actually uh, came out to let them know that you all are not going to do this in in honor of Rayshard Brooks. As a matter of fact, one of the young ladies is out there, uh, her name was Ashley Brooks, and she said that she was out there advocating for her brother. And so... Uh, they and then in terms of the guns, we told them that guns was necessary. As a matter of fact, that was the whole purpose of us being out there. Mm-hmm. Literally, was to say to them, the community is scared. But when people drive by on the streets, they see guns up and down the streets. That that's a fear for them, especially in light of the fact that people had actually was busting out people windows, barricading streets, doing all these different things. That that was just not going to be accepted in the community. That was how we began to go out and interact with the folks who had those guns out there. Their position to us was that we are protecting this Wendy's and we're protecting, we're not the same ones. So of course, in terms of gun laws, we don't have the right to tell people not to bear arms, but we emphasize to them that this community does not support this mm-hmm. categorically. And then that we began to have conversations with them about what is it that you all want? Did you have any communication with APD or Mayor Bottoms about what to do with this group? Yes, I did. You know, we began to have conversations in terms of, I actually called Mayor Bottoms, told them, well, not Mayor Bottoms specifically. I never really talked to Mayor Bottoms. I was talking to their administration, chief operating officers, Atlanta Police Department, everything. 
As a matter of fact, the first group we had, we actually went out there and told them that you all gonna have to stop having the guns out in the street and blocking the streets. And so actually that happened the next day uh, before we could even get out there, the police department had did that. But we was letting the police department know that we were actually interacting with these people and that we was actually making, asking them and demanding that they stop the guns also. But again, going back to that, the police department knew that and they had the choice of either listening to me or making another decision. I believe that the reason they did that was because of the fact that uh, the, the crowd had quieted down. And again, in terms of gun right laws, how do we just stop them unless they're at actually in the point of doing something because you have a right to bear arms, which is really scary in the, in the state of Georgia. So the police department was always around interacting. Uh, one of the things that I, I think the police department felt also if they had came in, it would escalate it back up again. So they kind of interacted in a way that was a distance to have peaceful transition as they still mourn Rayshard Brooks. But did anyone tell this group, okay, perhaps you're right, you, you have the right to bear arms, but you don't have the right to put up illegal barricades, which is leading up to the whole altercation and, and then eight-year-old Sequoia Turner is murdered. To that point, let's move to another level. So the first discussion was that you can't barricade the streets off. You can't have people who are scared to go up and down the streets and interact on the streets. That is unacceptable. The neighborhood said that, everybody said that. We dealt with that within the first couple of days that we was out there. The second decision was made was that and I had talked to them that they wanted to barricade off Wendy's. So when I, we began to interact with that, we went back and forth in terms of times and dates. I told them what I was doing. I asked, also gave them an assessment, the mayor's office's assessment of what, what was it that the folks out there wanted? What were their needs? And what I found out there as we interacted is that Wendy's had become a place where it was not just about folks carrying guns, but it really became a place that as I was out there, where people were coming and memorializing Rayshard Brooks. Mm -hmm. It became a place where people were actually bringing in food. As a matter of fact, when I was out there that Sunday, if you remember, I was the one that actually called on all the communities from across the city to make this a memorial for Rayshard Brooks. I asked people to bring flowers. I called out artists. I did a lot of things to really, as opposed to just being mad, is to, to really create a peaceful way to memorialize Rayshard Brooks. So as that went, went about, the barricades was the next step in terms of, and I prepared them to let them know that at some point we're going to have to put barricades up here. So I was actually interacting with the mayor's office in terms of when the barricades would go up. We also was letting the people on, in the community out there on site know that. And so a plan was the Thursday before 4th of July that the barricades was going to actually go up on site. And that they were going to block it off. Barricades, barricades put up by the city? Yes. They were originally supposed to go up on Thursday. I had asked, let me just say I had asked for Thursday. And we were trying to work that out. The mayor's office folks came back and said, council member, we don't have the right equipment to put the barricades up on Thursday. We Because the barricades that they felt that needed to go up was the brick boulder barricades. They didn't have that. And let's be so, clear, Councilmember Shepard, because I know listeners probably are saying the purpose of the barricades then was for what? Wendy's had reached out and had told the city, and I even interacted with them in terms of what was going on. And Wendy's was saying that they wanted people off their property. Mm -hmm. They said that what they said to me very specifically was that they wanted folks to, they could walk in in terms of memorializing Rayshard Brooks, but they did not want folks on their property. Mm -hmm. They didn't want cars, vehicles, and all of that, but people could walk in okay. and not actually drive in. They wanted to have, it was a liability issue for them. They became concerned about a lot of different things. And so they made a statement. And so we was working with Wendy and I asked, Wendy's talked to Wendy's and talked to the mayor's office. And originally it was supposed to be done on Thursday, didn't have the right equipment. So the plan then was for the following Monday after the 4th of July that those barricades would go up. Councilmember Shepard, after the shooting death of Sequoia Turner, Mayor Bottoms is quoted as saying, we cleared out the barricades out of the streets 
And at the request of council members Shepard and President Felicia Moore, we did not clear out the Wendy's site. Is that true? That's basically true? I had worked with the mayor to ask them to work with me as a group. But I'm going to say again, the barricades in terms of agreement with the mayor was that the barricades would go up on Thursday. For the Wendy's so, location. For the okay. Wendy's location. And so the mayor's office knew that. They came back to me and said, council member, we're not going to be able to do it on Thursday. We're okay. going to have to do it on Monday. So, yes, we were out there myself. I was the one pretty much interacting with uh, the mayor's office. Miss Moore never had a conversation with the mayor's office. It was me interacting with my neighborhood folks in terms of what was happening out at Wendy's. Do you feel with the mayor's statements after Sequoia Turner's death that there was a little bit of blaming going on here? I would say that the mayor, you know, if you want to say blaming, I would say that she was incorrect in terms of her statements. So if you want to define that as blaming, we worked with them, we interacted with them, and she spent it a different way. But, you know, I know for a fact, I'm giving you the facts in terms of how it was presented how it was done in the community. And oh, by the way, by the time we got, before we even got, let me give you another little caveat. The folks that we had been interacting with out there at Wendy's on Thursday, they at a point just said that they did not want to have any more conversation with us. It got to be a, 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 a disagreement out there on site in terms of who we were, what we wanted, what I as a council member was, what I presented, all of that. And so at that point, um, Ms. Brooks called us and the group, not just me, but the group, and said that they were done with us. So the communication broke down before that weekend also. And so to that point, again on Monday, as the barricades went up, the barricades was already prepared to go up. They should have, it was going to go up on Monday anyway. Did you sense that perhaps something bad was going to come out of this, if this was their final stance with you all? Never. Never. I, and I don't even to, to this day believe that they purposely did anything to cause what happened, uh, what happened on Saturday night. I was blown away with what happened on Saturday night. Uh, Ms. Brooks even called me after that on a Sunday to say, Councilmember Shepard, we didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, that's, I don't know. The police department is still investigating what specifically happened out there on that night. There's discussion today that the streets were barricaded off by a group of folks who wanted to do fireworks. I don't know what happened on that night. But again, uh, we had had no communication with the, with the folks out there since Thursday. So I was blown away when I got a call on Saturday night, uh, 4th of July night, from the uh, Chief Bryant saying that a young girl had gotten killed out there. Uh, so I was just really, mind, it was mind blowing. Community members from MPUV who appeared on this program, and they talked about the gun violence in this community. You've been a longtime council member for parts of the neighborhoods there. Gun violence, is this is not new to this community. Would you agree? It is not. It's not. As a matter of fact, 4th of July weekend, that same night that Ms. Turner, Socorro, got killed, an hour or two later on a block right up there from there, the Chevron gas station, another death right in that community mm -hmm. uh, on Lakewood Avenue that same night, five, six blocks away, shootout in that community. So when we talk about shooting and killings in our communities, it is us also who are killing folks. So you were given a list of demand from a coalition of neighborhood associations. They also gave this list to council member Smith and to council member Winslow. You looked at their demands. Yes, I have them right here. When you look at those demands, and there's quite a few, especially the one indicating the community members would like to be part of the hiring committee for the next police chief, or at least have some input, you think that's a fair request? I think uh, I'm not, they're asking specifically for MPUV. That process in terms of how hiring is done is going to have to be something that is looked at by this council mm -hmm. and, 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 the, and the mayor. That is the first time I've seen that type of request. I think that there, but I think it's not a bad request to have as we're looking at communities in terms of policing to make sure that we have someone who is actually very conscious of everything that's going on with the police department. There is a process we have with the city. The hiring of the commissioners and the police chief is up under the umbrella of the mayor's office. You know, the city of Atlanta, she is executive branch. So she has the authority 
to actually uh, make that determination, not city council. Mm -hmm. So that is up in the purview of her. Uh, I'm hoping that if they're looking at that, that's something that can be done by the community. But I think it might be great to have community, at least if not on the panel, give input and actually have interaction in terms of who the next police chief would be. They also talked about that of all the neighborhoods in the Atlanta area that some have experienced great economic development and growth. They talked about density being an issue in terms of maybe they haven't been able to be on the receiving end of some economic development that would help their communities in terms of jobs, maybe even better housing options. What do you make of those concerns for the community? Well, I believe that some of that is true, absolutely. In my district, I have one of the most underserved communities in terms of economic development. Uh, I, I have not only that particular corridor, which is a small piece of my corridor, mm-hmm. uh, but I have Metropolitan Parkway, I have Fort McPherson. So I'm in the process as a council member of aggressively pursuing everything I can to bring economic development to our communities. Uh, at the same time, uh, that particular quarter, University Avenue is an interesting quarter because mm-hmm. in terms of the shift, what is getting ready to happen on that particular quarter, literally as we speak, where that is, is the Beltline is literally coming through there as we speak. And so the Beltline South Side is being built right now in my district from over by uh, Adair Park and uh, coming all the way over to uh, going through People's Town. Uh, and that is actually in the process of being as we speak. So that is going to bring an economic shift. But I would also say to you that as I've been in MPUV meetings, there's also been discussions around um, the concern in terms of what is coming mm-hmm. and how we believe it's going to push people out. So I, I sit in meetings and I've listened to both sides. One say that they want economic development. But the other side says, well, that's going to push the community. That's, that's gentrification. It's going to push us out. So one of the things that I'm doing as a council member that I'm actually having meetings with the community about is what do we want to see happen in that University Avenue corridor? Mm-hmm. Uh, getting with the city of Atlanta and become and creating a plan about that whole corridor from McDonald Boulevard all the way down to University Avenue, all the way down to Metropolitan Parkway. There are some plans in place, and so some things are changing at, in this community. I think one of the concerns for the community is that they want to make sure, as, as I said earlier, that they don't get pushed out. They want equity in terms mm-hmm. of whatever development that happens in the community. They want to make sure that there's equity in terms of that, is that there's a fair, fair balance is that Black mm-hmm. folks and people of color don't get pushed out, poor people don't get pushed out, is that however it grows in terms of gentrification, that there's a balance in terms of development. You can't assure them some things, obviously, but what would you like to, if you can, assure the communities that have not only given you this list of demands, but through your lens, advocating for what they deserve in terms of resources? I am working with this community. One thing has happened as a result of what's happening on University Avenue in this particular area of the community is we now have a coalition of folks, and we're actually sitting and talking together continuously to talk about the pros and cons of everything from the, the list they have, which is public safety driven and economic driven to everything. So as I said earlier, we are now beginning to work together as a community to galvanize around this. And as opposed to it happen, happening without any input from the community, organizing the way where there's actually viable input from the community in terms of what's happened. I have done that in several other parts of my district in terms of redevelopment plans and looking at what happens in all these communities and I am doing the same thing for University Avenue, looking at a redevelopment plan for University Avenue and making sure that the people in the community are at the table with that redevelopment plan. And finally, Councilmember Shepard, you have talked about being in this community, being of this community. Do you feel that you have done the best you, you could have during these last few months for them? I feel like what has happened at University Avenue that I have done, I have looked at all sides. I've looked at all sides from the folks who were not peaceful protesters out there to the people who were pro, who was peaceful protesters to the last segment of people who were out there who were members of the Rayshard Brooks family. I have interacted in terms of working with my residents who are around there. So I have not done this in isolation as a council member of anyone. Every neighborhood I have been at the table with every neighborhood group surrounding that community and I continue to have dialogue with them in terms of this particular area of the community 
And I also do this across the city. I, in terms of my district, I continuously try to have relationships with my community. And so I, and I will continue to keep working to make a difference in my community as long as I'm a council member. Council member Joyce Shepard, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I really do. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.